Stage Directions is brought to you by the Onstage Blog Podcast Network, found exclusively at onstageblog.com. Ashley Griffin, your theatrical Hermione Granger. While we're all holed up in quarantine, I'm currently teaching some virtual classes through the University of Fredonia on playwriting and directing, and I thought that it would be nice to bring you the audio from some of these um, virtual classes. So today we have part one of directing. Um, any ones that I do that I think might be interesting for you guys, I'll record and put them on here. So thank you so much to the University of Fredonia and all my wonderful students, and I hope you enjoy this part one of directing. This is you if you are a new director, if you're an established director, if you're somebody um, who isn't a director and just finds this interesting. So enjoy. Well, first of all, I think that if you're a strong director, you can direct anything. Barring something with a vocabulary that's like not your vocabulary. If you know nothing about dance, maybe musicals are not the first pick for you, but I I think some of the most amazing experimental directors I've seen have directed some phenomenal commercial productions and vice versa. So don't feel like you have to get in a box, but it is really good to know what you're passionate about and what your skill set is. So I think directing is is challenging in that you're the captain of the ship and it's a really big job. Um, and I think there's, so there's two two big challenges, I think, with being a director. One is um, there's a technical side of being a director, and then there's sort of, um, I don't know what the exact term is, the emotive side, for lack of a better word, in terms of actually working with other human beings and like directing actors. And I feel like a lot of directing programs are really great at the technical side, especially in film programs, which is a different thing. Like you will graduate knowing, you know, stage picture and how to use a camera and what lens to use and all of those different things. And then you'll suddenly find yourself in a room with 20 people and not really know how to talk to them in order to create your vision. You're great at building a good stage picture, but you're not necessarily great at bringing the whole show together. So directing actors and talking to actors and talking to designers is something that's kind of never dealt with. Um, and as a result, they kind of end up getting relegated to being kind of like parts of the set <laughs> in a way. Um, like I need it to rain here and for you to cry and the rain thing's doing its thing. So cry. I don't understand what the problem is. That's an obviously extreme example, but I have worked with directors who have done that. Um, the other element is, goes to the fact that you are in charge and, a lot of directors, and it doesn't sound like any of you, this is the case, but a lot of directors get into directing because they like being the boss. Um, and that's not the reason to be a director. Um, I, and meaning it in a not patronizing way at all, like meaning it in, in the best way I can, I think being a director is like being the best parent that you could possibly be or the best teacher that you could possibly be. Um, there's a, a wonderful conductor, Benjamin, I can't remember his last name. He worked with the Boston um, Philharmonic Orchestra, I think. Um, 
he's known as one of the best conductors in the world. And he talks about having a revelation one day that, cause you know, a conductor is like the big important one and you know, his photos on the CD cover and all that. And he suddenly realized one day that the conductor is the only person who doesn't make a sound. Um, and it's kind of the same thing with a director. You are not on stage. The work of your hands is not physically on stage. If you do your job well, no one should be paying attention to the direction. Your job is to bring out the best in everybody else that you're working with. Your job is to help the set designer be the best set designer they can be and help the actor give the best performance that they're capable of. And so the having the mind shift from I'm the one that's in charge and I'm going to execute my vision to I'm the captain of the ship and my job is to get all of these people to be the best that they can possibly be. It gets you into more of a service mentality and it's really, really helpful and beneficial, especially because um, being a director is like, it, you're wrangling a lot of personalities. Um, you obviously need to have a vision. You obviously need to you know, have a directorial reason for why you're doing this, but you're dealing with a lot of personalities in the room um, who might disagree with you, who might totally agree with you, but not understand how to give you what you want, who maybe are going to interpret something within themselves that's in a totally different way than how you might articulate it. Um, it's kind of like having to speak 12 different languages <laughs> in order to get everybody to the same destination. And those are the things that I feel like aren't really talked about that much when you're directing. Um, so one of the things that I want to do today is I want to give you sort of like a step-by-step -step plan of like, if you are asked to direct a show, like, what do you do? <laughs> you know, it's like, yay. So what are the steps now? Um, it's a different thing if you're directing an original piece, if you're directing a well-established piece, or if you're directing a film, like they're different mediums. Um, do all of you want to focus on directing theater or do some of you want to do film and television as well? I'm interested in film and television. I have zero experience. So for yeah. the time being, I'm focusing on theater. Yeah. Awesome. I think theater is always a great training ground because the biggest difference, honestly, with film and television is the technical equipment. Um, mm -hmm. It's a that's a whole other different thing um, that we can definitely touch on later as well. Um, but for theater. So the first thing is don't direct something unless there's a reason that you legitimately want to direct it. This may get complicated. Some theater may ask you to direct something that you're not really that passionate about. Maybe they're going to pay your rent for a year by doing it. So you then have to weigh it out. But don't, even in a situation like that, don't ever take a job because you feel like you have to and there's nothing in you that has any sort of spark to do it. Because especially as the director, you're the one that has to bring the spark to the entire production. Um, so make sure there's something in you that wants to do it. Um, the number one biggest thing is you have to figure out what the piece is about. You have, you have to know that immediately. Um, it doesn't mean a piece can't be about more than one thing. Um, it shouldn't be something that like narrows it down immensely, but basically you need to know thematically what this piece is about have some idea of it. That's obviously going to be a discussion in the room. It's something that's going to expand, but you have to have some idea of what it's about. Um, and you have to have a point of view about it. So you have to have something that you want to say. Um, 
You have to know the experience you want the audience to walk out of the theater with. Um, and yeah, you have to be rooted in that. If it's an original piece, then you have a, an immediate collaborator with the person who wrote it, and you two can really get on the same page together. And it can be really beneficial to be working with the playwright. If you are working on a new piece, the very first thing that I would do is get in a room with that writer as much as humanly possible before rehearsals start. And if you were in my playwriting class, um, I talked about this from the playwright's perspective. Um, your job is to serve the playwright. Um, your job is not, and I've seen this so many times, but your job is not to be like, oh, nice playwright, you happen to do a good thing. Now let's let the adults go take care of it because you don't really know what you're doing. Yeah, Amanda. So like with, let's say you like more classical pieces of theater, is that kind of saying like, don't break any conceptualized rules that a playwright has given. So like waiting for Godot, like same way like it says, like I may have the wrong playwright, but like no women should be in that show. But if a director yeah. says like, oh, I want women in the show. Well, that actually gets into a really interesting question. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so let's circle back to Gatto because that's a separate issue. But when you're talking about a classical piece, um, again, you need to know thematically what it's about and what you want to say. And any decision that you make needs to be in service of that. People can get in a lot of trouble when they get sort of like a cool image or a cool concept and that becomes the point. And that's when you get like Hamlet on, on Mars because think of the set, you know, and it's, it, is that really serving the play? I'm not saying there's not a universe where Hamlet on Mars is not a great thematic idea and there's not a way that you could do it that it really elucidates the play. But you need to have the theme first and you need to know what you're saying and every decision after that needs to be in service of that and what the play's about. Now with classical pieces, there's a lot of different things you can explore. Like um, I have a lot of experience with Hamlet. I directed it and was in it. There's a lot of themes in Hamlet that you can focus on. You can focus on death. You can focus on um, passing down sort of the sins of the generation. You can focus on revenge. Um, you can, you can focus on a lot of different things, but basically you need to know what that piece is about, what you want to say with it, and then every single decision needs to be in service of that. So for example, um, now the, the Gatto thing is a different issue because that is an edict from a playwright that we know they have said, um, you know, Shakespeare doesn't really have edicts about, you know, don't set my plays on Mars, you know. We barely have like a solid version of his plays to begin with. But when you're dealing with um, a piece in the classical canon where we do know something strong that that writer has said, such as no women can be in this play. Well, on the one hand, you kind of just have to do it because legally with their estate, you have to do it. It's sort of like um, the Jerome Robbins estate and people know about this more than I do, but the Jerome Robbins estate, when you revive any musical that Jerome Robbins choreographed, you have to use Jerome Robbins choreography. Um, there was a lot of controversy about that with the revival of West Side Story when they didn't. Um, but if, if a writer has made an edict from on high and they are not around for you to challenge that or ask questions about it, legally there's not a lot that you can do. Um, now, if we 
were 100 years in the future where um, maybe that edict about women being in um, Gado doesn't necessarily legally hold, then you have some more flexibility. But what I would say is if you're going to do it, you need to have a reason to do it other than, oh, it would be cool to have women in it. You know what I mean? Um, when I directed my production of Hamlet, um, there was a lot of conceptual things that I did, but the core essence of it was Hamlet was a woman who was raised as a man for succession purposes, and Ophelia was a man who'd been bullied his whole life for being too sensitive. Um, the reason that I did that is for me, and what I wanted to look at with Hamlet, um, is for me the tragic flaw of Hamlet, and many people will debate this, I mean Hamlet's been debated since time immemorial, but for me, Hamlet is not about the tragedy of inaction. I find actually Hamlet the most active character I've ever played. Um, it's the tragedy of somebody who is too human and too aware of their humanness, and it is you know causing a lot of difficulties in the act of living. Um, and I also, and so because of that, I wanted to emphasize the humanity of Hamlet and how this is something that all, it's universal to all human beings. Um, so the idea was we're all Hamlet and we're all Ophelia. Um, so f physically on stage, Hamlet and Ophelia looked like a gay couple. Technically they were a heterosexual couple, but Hamlet also looked like they could be trans. They also looked like they could be a butch lesbian. And so at the end of the day, these became two human beings on stage dealing with issues. It also, and then once I had that idea, I read through the play to make sure that, you know, I wasn't like sticking a concept on top of something just for fun. And I found that it actually illuminated a lot of things in the text that were often problems. Like a lot of the um, quotes that are often read as being very misogynistic, like frailty, thy name is woman, suddenly became self-directed. In that moment, Hamlet was alone on stage, stripped, unbound themselves and you know it became a, a self-directed frailty thy name is woman like I need to man up kind of a thing and all of the comments toward Ophelia about like you speak like a green girl and whatnot became like you know stop being such a sissy and man up and they suddenly s served the text in a very different way um so I hope that sort of answers your question but basically if there's a legal edict from on high you kind of have to just roll with it. If there's not, make sure that it's serving the purpose of what you're doing. I personally would love to see a gado that has women in it um, for many reasons. Um, right now, that's not something that can be done. But make sure you're not inserting a concept for the sake of a concept. Like, I'm going to do an all-female King Lear. Why? Because uh, my friend wants to play King Lear. Like, you know, that, that's not a good enough reason to do it. So it should always come from the core of what is this play about and how am I best serving the theme of this play. And that's when you can start to have fun and start to think through possibilities of how to do that. If it is an original piece, meet with the writer as much as you possibly can ahead of time. Go through every word of that script. Ask any question that you could possibly want to ask because either it's an opportunity for if a rewrite needs to happen, it happens before actors walk in the room, or it's an opportunity for you to understand what the playwright meant. Um, I just directed a new show at the Hudson Theater, and we would go through the script, and there would be times I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm confused about this line, and then they would explain, and I'd be like, oh, great, awesome, I totally understand it now. So that then when an act, because if I have that question, an actor's going to have that question. So then when it comes up in the rehearsal room, I have an answer for them. 
does not mean that you have to have the answers for everything. Um, it is totally awesome and great to be in the rehearsal room and somebody asks something and to be like, you know what? I don't know. That's a really great question. I'm either going to ask the playwright about that. I'm going to ask somebody else about that. What do you all think? Let's all figure it out together and make a decision. You don't have to be the genius expert who has every answer in the room, but you do have to be prepared and you do need to have as many answers as you are able to have before you walk into the rehearsal room. Um, preparedness is the number one thing does not mean you don't have flexibility when you get in the room. It doesn't mean you walk in and you're like, you are going to move here on this word and that is inflexible, but you need to have a game plan. Um, I have worked with directors and heard stories about directors who um, would come in and they'd like stage part of a scene and they'd get it done really fast and they'd be like, great, can we maybe look at this monologue that happens later? No, I actually haven't gotten to that part of the script yet, so I'm not really sure what happens there yet. Um, I've heard stories about there was a play that within that play, scenes from a classic Shakespeare play were being performed, and the director kept skipping over those moments, and people would keep being like, you know, why are we not touching on this? And they'd be like, oh, I'm actually not really familiar with that Shakespeare play. I don't really know what to do with it. That's not okay. <laughs> That's 100% not okay. Um, basically, in, one of the big things about a director is everybody has to trust you and they're not going to trust you because you tell them that they have to trust you. And I've seen that too. I've seen that. Well, I'm the director. So you have to do what I say. It's not going to help anybody. Um, think about the ways that the reasons why you trust the people that you trust in your own life. And that's what you need to do. Um, especially because, um, like, let's talk about actors for a minute. Actors are in a really vulnerable position because they're the ones that are physically up on stage having to do this thing. Um, and they can't walk out at the beginning of a show and be like, by the way, that thing that I do in the second act, like, I really disagree with it, but the director just told me to do it, so I'm just doing what I was told. Um, I've been in shows like that, and it is so demoralizing. Um, I... I was in a show that got some major, major reviews and we were all freaking out because nothing of what we were doing was what we organically felt was correct. It was all the edicts from on high that we had been given. And so it's, it's kind of one thing to get a terrible review when it's like, well, these were my choices. I really believe in them and I'm sorry that they didn't translate versus I got a terrible review off of choices that I was forced to make. Um, and it's really, it's scary for an actor. You know, all they're thinking about is their role. They're the ones who are physically out there having to do it. Um, and they can't see themselves. You know, a set designer can step back and look at the set. A lighting designer can step back and look at the lights. You are an actor's eyes and ears. So basically, it's funny. If any of you watch Inside the Actor's Studio, um, when they ask the actors, what do you most want from a director? I'd say like 90% of the time, they say, I want somebody that I can trust to be my eyes. Um, and that, that means that they can feel free to go on stage and just do something. And that when you say, wow, that really worked, they'll believe you because you will also say, you know what, that wasn't terribly successful. Let's relook at that moment that they need to trust that you're going to be honest with them. Cause if you're not like all those people in the audience will, and it's going to be way, way worse. Um, and you have to be able to do that with everybody on your team. You're the team leader. Um, does anybody have any questions or thoughts or concerns about that so far? Yeah, Natalie. Um, 
I was, well, I, I was just going to say that, um, so, uh, a couple years ago, I, I directed, um, a show, I directed Inherit the Wind, mm-hmm. um, which is one of my favorite shows. Yeah. And, um, I found that, uh, one thing I was coming up against was that, uh, a lot of my actors were older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was like hired to do this job because I actually came to the company with like, I proposed to the show. Yeah. I like sold myself to the show, sold myself to the director. I was like, one and like they I was really lucky that they that yeah. I, they approved it and then I got into the room and I I realized and you know after casting and everything I, I realized that my actors were there was going to be like a little bit of a, a, a power dynamic and mm-hmm. so I found that um it was helpful for me to like ask them a lot of mm-hmm. like leading questions yeah. kind of mm-hmm. in terms of choices yeah um and then I, I, I kind of, I think, placed them in a place where it was like, yes, I was to some extent like steering the ship, yeah. but uh, I thought that it, it also helped a little bit with the power because then it's like, if we arrive at this decision because the words came out of your mouth, mm-hmm. the actor, then like that, I, I don't know. So I just kind of found that that was, I don't know, is that like, a sort of good general rule. So oh, like, that is like, that is, arrive, that so. is possibly the most helpful tool a director can possibly have. And I'm so glad that you learned that holistically. Um, yeah, it's really good for multiple reasons. One is the power dynamic, which I'll come back to in a minute. And, but the other is, um, every actor is their own entity. And basically an actor is having to inhabit the emotions and actions of a different person. But every person is different. So how you might activate sadness is different than how I might or whatnot. And you can't necessarily know that. Nor is it appropriate to suddenly turn rehearsal into like a deep acting class where you're forcing them to share personal stories about themselves. Um, So leading questions is a really great way to do that. Usually what I tend to do um, when I'm in the process of actually directing a scene or we're running something is we'll run it. And then the first thing that I'll do is ask the actors, how did that feel for you? Sometimes they won't be comfortable answering. Sometimes they'll be like, oh, it was fine. Um, Sometimes they'll be like, you know, um, I discovered something really great. And then awesome, let's talk about that. And sometimes they'll be like, you know what? I'm just, I'm really having trouble with the transition between these two lines. Awesome. Because then what you can do is you can tell what's going on for them versus what's going on in your head about maybe what needs to be fixed, what needs to be worked on, what's already going really well. And you can use that to help meet. Um, I find that unless you're in a dire, dire circumstance, telling an actor what to do outside of just giving them basic blocking is never the most efficient way to go about it. It's, um, you, you do need to give them blocking, obviously. (laughs) Um, but in the sense of talk, get them to talk through it. You know, what, what's your action here? Um, what do you want from the other person? Um, eventually they'll talk themselves into a place of like, Oh, maybe I could try this. Awesome. Yes. Let's go try that. And sometimes if you've lived them in a certain way, it might even be the exact same thing that you were hoping that they would do. It's not, it's not a manipulative thing. It's helping them to holistically through their own process, arrive at whatever's needed for the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so asking questions is great. It's also really respectful of their process because um, you want to be talking at them as little as possible. Um, 
yeah, but asking what do you, what do you want to try and how are you feeling and how it's great and it it gives them a voice because the other thing, not so much with established actors, but especially with younger actors, um, there's really a feeling of like the playwright is God, the director is God, the director is the person who hired me and has the potential to fire me. So I have to please them. All actors, whether they want to or not, come to a piece with a little bit of the mentality of I need to please these people because they hired me and I want them to hire me again and I don't want to lose my job. Mm -hmm. And the faster that you can really establish, I hired you because you're the right person. We are now all an ensemble. No one has to be auditioning anymore. Like, you know, this isn't like an audition to keep your job or anything. Let's all be equals. And I want to hear from you. And the faster that they start to be able to be comfortable expressing themselves and voicing their thoughts and feeling respected and heard, the better, the faster trust is going to be established. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't times when you need to um, kind of put an end to something. Um, there are some actors that um, like being in control of a room to a point that isn't necessarily healthy. Um, so once you've done all of those things, there may come a point of, that's great. I really hear what you're saying. Right now, I need you to try this. So we're going to go back and we're going to do this right now. And hopefully, if you've been giving respect and trust to them, you'll then automatically get it back. That doesn't always happen. Yeah, that's happen. what I was going to say. But it's like if you've, so, if you've like sewed a history of like, I respect your choices, I respect your choices, then mm-hmm. like they're a little bit more willing to be like, okay, like you can, you can play your director trump card exactly. here. Exactly. And especially if you're doing it in a nice way and, and you've established that thing of that they can trust what you're seeing from the outside. Um, you know, I, I did a a show recently where we were trying different staging moments for a monologue for somebody and they wanted to try something that totally made sense for their, um, objective at the moment. And I'm like, great, let's try it and whatnot. And then a, a little while later I came back and I said, you know, I know this is really frustrating, but purely from a stage picture perspective, I kind of need you to do it this other way. Is that workable? Can we find a way for that to work? And they were immediately like, absolutely. Like, like, yes, you're, you're the eye. We need to do what's going to work best. So if it's really a push and pull, it helps. Now, in terms of the age thing, I have a lot of experience with this. Um, I grew up in a really wonderful rep company that I started at when I was five And when you're in a rep company, it's kind of all hands on deck and you just get thrown in to do things when you're needed. So I assisted on some shows when I was like 11 and was directing, directing like, um, like family theater things and children's things and whatnot. Um, when I was like 12, 13, um, why do you just keep getting cooler? (laughs) Thank you. Um, it was, believe me, it was not, it's, it's not cool when you're like 12 and you have a room full of people that are people that are older than you and will not listen to a word you say, like, it's not cool at all. It feels really terrible. Um, you also don't have a lot of experience directing. So you feel like you're the dumbest person in the room and there's no reason that these people should be listening to you or respecting you. And you're not even sure if the choices that you're making are the right ones in the first place. Um, but you have to kind of get find coping mechanisms real fast. Um, and I'm, I'm still pretty young and I am usually one of the youngest people in the room when I'm directing. And I find that the way to combat that is number one, being prepared. Um, 
if you are young and you walk into a room and you're not prepared as a director, nobody is going to listen to a word you say. If it's clear that you didn't do your homework, it's done. Your chance is gone. If you walk into a room, um, I like the phrase, fake it till you make it. <laughs> if you walk into the room like you deserve to be there, like you are a very excellent director, that you are prepared, and that you um, are trustworthy, that will go a long way toward people treating you that way in return. Um, but it does mean that you really have to do your homework. Um, I'm not going to lie. There have been times that I've been directing professionally with like serious things in New York um, when people don't seem to want to listen to me that I've had to, in a nice way, sort of turn to them and be like, I'm very good at what I do. I'm a very good director. I'm here to help you as best as I can. But if you don't want to listen to me, then we have a difficulty and we need to figure out a way around that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that you kind of have to get comfortable doing. And it's a balance. It's a balance between being the one in authority and, and owning that and not being egotistical and making sure that everybody has a voice and, and that the best idea wins. Um, a lot of directors sometimes feel like if they weren't the one that came up with something, then it's invalid and somehow minimizes their worth as an artist. Um, I said this in one of my other classes, but um, Stanley Kubrick, when he was making a movie, would literally hand out the screenplay to everybody that was anywhere near his set, like to the janitors that were working, to the caterers, to everybody. And people would be like, why do you do that? And he's like, well, I don't want to miss out on the best idea. And they might have the best idea. Um, and so if there's really a mentality of the best idea in the room wins, that that's always really great for inspiring camaraderie. Um, you also need to be able to back up your decisions. If you say, I want you to get on the table at this point and do X, Y, and Z, and an actor's feeling insecure about it and they say, well, why? I don't get it. You have to have an answer for them. That doesn't mean that your answer can't change, that they might not come back and be like, well, actually, I feel like a way that we could maybe do that more effectively would be this. And then you can be like, oh, that's really interesting. Why don't you try that? But if you say, I want you to get on that table because it's a cool stage picture, or I don't know, I just thought of it last night. It's not going to fly. It's absolutely not going to fly. It's also going to waste a lot of time. Um, so what I, again, going back to structuring, if, you, if you're directing something, um, I have as many meetings as I possibly can with the playwright ahead of time. Um, I'm somebody, I, I, being a playwright, I like having the playwright in the room. Some people, some playwrights don't like being in the room. Um, but the thing that is important to establish with not only your writer, but your entire production team is that you need to be the one point of verbal contact between all the different groups. If everybody's kind of throwing out notes, it gets really confusing. If a, a designer has something that the actors need to know, great come and tell me, and then I will filter that to the actors. There are times when it's certainly appropriate for other people to speak, um, and there are definitely times when you might be like, to the writer, like, hey, you had some great thoughts on that. Do you want to share that with the group, or does anybody have any questions for the playwright? Or um, set designer, why don't you explain all this to us? It doesn't mean that you're the only one to ever speak, but it does mean that you should be the primary filter so that people only have one voice that they're listening to. And that also then gets you out of a potential problem with getting conflicting information from different people. Um, 
so yeah, so lots of meetings with the with the writer. If they're in the room, awesome. Um, just make sure that they're comfortable with filtering things through you as much as possible. Um, and then I then you do auditions. And with auditions, you and the playwright together usually are the ones that are coming up with audition sides. Um, be very frugal in what you're having auditioners do. Um, they're are a lot of jokes in New York about the casting companies that will literally send you like half the play. And then you come in and you're asked to do like half a page. Um, but everything you send, the actors are preparing. Um, so really what I try to do is hone it down to two contrasting moments from the show that are the most diverse moments that a character might have to do. Um, so like if I were auditioning for Hamlet, I might give something that shows comedy and some of those more witty moments and being silly and then something of just like soul on the floor. Um, I would keep them short. Um, honest to goodness, you can usually tell within two lines whether you're interested in somebody or not. You need a lot less material than you think you do. And you can always give people more, but, but give them a frugal amount so that it's actually manageable for them to go on and work on it and come back. Um, when I'm auditioning, I can sort of immediately tell if somebody's right for something or not, and if they're talented. You can kind of tell right off the bat. Um, I like to give people direction just to see if they can take direction and they're open to it. Um, work with them the same way that you would work with them in the room. Um, but you might find somebody that's super talented, and the second you try to give them direction, they start questioning you about it and start saying no a lot in the audition room, and that's not a great sign. Asking questions is great. Wanting to get on the same page as you is great. Um, but being combative or doing it again exactly the same way. At the end of the day, I would rather work with somebody who's a little less talented but is totally up to play and is really great at taking direction than the most amazingly talented person in the world who is not going to listen to a word that comes out of your mouth. Um, so... You've cast your show, you're in the rehearsal room, and... Yes, sorry, Amanda. I just had a question. Yeah. Um, I, like, going back to, like, audition material, so I have this idea as someone in casting, but I'm interested to hear your, like, as yeah. a playwright and director, do you ever, like, would you ever prefer a monologue? Like, is that typical in New York? Because I haven't seen it to be typical in New York. Mm -hmm. In the educational system, they, like, are always, like, have your monologues ready and, like, have, like, your whole rep book, like, yeah, prepared yeah. and everything. So, um, usually if you're auditioning for a specific play, they'll give sides. Usually, um, monologues are still a thing, but it's usually more when it's more of an open call situation. Um, I like to give them the opportunity to do what's coming from the character. When you're talking about musicals, it is always a good idea to ask um, a singer to bring their book um, because you may have heard them sing from the show. Maybe there's this other thing that you're curious to see if they can do. Maybe they're auditioning for the ensemble and you want to see what their range is. Um, maybe their agent didn't send them the material until the night before, which happens and isn't fair, in which case you can usually tell them then it can be like, you know what, let's sing something from your book. Do you have something funny? Do you have something like really high soprano? What's like your favorite thing to sing? It gives you more options to see them at their best. Um, but usually if you are auditioning for a specific play, um, you should be giving them sides from the show. 
Um, some people don't. Some people also have like five rounds of callbacks, in which case they ask you to bring something in on your own at first. Um, in general, I like to see them do, do things from the show. So that's usually what I like to do. Um, and then, yeah, Mitch. Um, do you have any pointers for like <clears throat> in the room direction that you're giving people during their audition? Yeah. Um, just like an, on any sort of level? Sure. No. Um, it depends a bit on what the show is and the role they're auditioning for. Um, and I, I like to leave it a little flexible in the room based on what I'm seeing. What, what I would say is inevitably, if you see somebody do like a scene or a monologue for the first time for a role, there's going to be some thought in your head of, let's say they're, they're really good at it. There's going to be some thought in your head of like, oh, wow, they really did this, this and that. I'm not seeing a lot of vulnerability. I don't know if they can really do the vulnerability in the next part of the play or whatnot. Then it's a great opportunity to be like, hey, that was that was really, really great. Let's play with something and then talk them through something that will help them to do the monologue more vulnerably. And you can be really open about like, this is not necessarily how this is going to be done. I just want to play a little bit. Um, I also like to be as open as I can with auditioners as possible because actors... And nothing about actors. We all do this. Overthink everything that happens. If you don't give them direction, it's because you hated them and you wanted them out of the room. If you gave them a bunch of direction, it's because they weren't giving you what you wanted. Um, if they told you this one random thing, it's you completely misinterpreted the, 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 the role. So I like to try to be as open as possible. I'll be like, that was great. That was spot on in terms of what that moment is. Let's just play and try something different just for fun, you know, and I'll, I'll try to be as, as upfront. Um, there's one example, um, a dear friend of mine and honest to goodness, the best audition I think I've ever seen. Um, I met him when he was auditioning for one of my shows. He came in and he did this scene like he could have walked straight on stage on Broadway and done it exactly that way. And it was perfect spot on hit it out of the ballpark um the director that we were with at the time wanted to see if they could take direction which is valid but there was nothing practical to give them to change because they did everything perfectly um and that got into kind of a funny situation in the room where they were like i oh, just like to do something else and then the actor was like i don't know what's wrong or what to try or whatnot so um try to make it as specific as you can even if they did everything perfect, be like, hey, we're going to try something for fun. And this is completely antithetical to the role, but we're just going to have fun with it. So you're playing a really vulnerable, sensitive character. Uh, do it like Scarface. Go, you know, and make it and make it fun. Um, if, if they've really done everything that you want to see, just do something wildly out of left field just to see if they can do it. Um, but in general, treat it as a mini moment in the rehearsal room. Like if this were a rehearsal what would you say to them and what would you want them to do the next time you ran it and work with them like that. And the more that it sort of feels like a work session, also the more that they start to loosen up. Um, so yeah, but I would, I would be specific. I would avoid be like, eh, just do it different. Um, a lot of people do say that it's really frustrating to actors. Um, yeah. So just, does that, does that help? Does that sort of answer your question a little bit? Okay. Um, so now you're in rehearsal and what your rehearsal time is will vary wildly, but inevitably you will not have enough time to rehearse. It's the rule of theater. 
I like to spend at least a couple days doing table work. And that's whether I'm doing a musical or a play. And musicals usually don't take the time to do that because there's no time and you're having to add learning music and learning choreography onto everything else. But I think table work is immensely important because if everybody's on the same page in terms of what is this story about, what is the theme we're trying to communicate, really understands what every line that they say means, staging the play is going to be a piece of cake because then you're not going to have to get into the situation later if you're trying to put it on its feet, but I don't really understand this moment or whatnot. So I'll usually start with just like a general introduction. We'll all introduce ourselves and then I'll just do a very casual table read and we'll just read it and I'll be really open. There's no pressure. You don't have to act this. We're just going to hear it. So everybody is in a room together hearing the play. If you have a design team, it's great to get them in so that everybody involved in the show can hear it with these people at least once before we all go off and do our thing. Um, We'll usually take a break. I'll usually have some sort of discussion about does anybody have any general questions about the show? And then I will go back and I will do a slow piece-by-piece table read where we will start at the top of the play And at any point, if anybody has a question, you stop and you ask the question. And it's meant to be very slow going. So you go a line at a time. If it's like, I don't know what this word means, or like, I'm confused about the timeline of this, or like, why does my character say that? That, great. Let's have a great discussion about it. And everybody's there. And so everybody can feel great ownership of the piece as a whole. I will do that as long as it takes to get through the entire play. And then I'll start staging. Um... I'll try to divide the rehearsal schedule up so you're never wasting people's time. Um, So basically the thing that you want to try to avoid is, um, let's say Mitch Connor and I are all the three people in a play, but most of the scenes are with Mitch and Connor. Sorry, you're just sitting there all adorable. I'm calling on you. Um, You don't want to call all three of us to every rehearsal when I'm going to be sitting in the corner for like hours and hours and hours doing nothing. Um, that's inevitably going to happen to some degree, but you want to try to break it up and be like, great, I'm going to call Mitch and Connor from 10 to three today. And then we're going to take a break and then we're going to add Ashley. Um, and so you want to have as much of that schedule done ahead of time as much as possible. The other thing to realize as the director is you are going to be spending more time on the show than any other person, because usually you wake up you have some form of a production meeting. You touch base with your stage manager, you meet with your designers, you do something like that. Then you're in rehearsal all day and you have to be at every single rehearsal. Then after rehearsal, you get to go and have more design meetings. And that's when you talk to the designers about things and you have to take notes on things like, hey, so we actually don't need that big giant ship to have a gangplank. We're not using that anymore. We changed the staging today. Um, you have to keep on top of everything because you're the person who has to tell everybody else the important information. And if you don't, then that gangplank that costs $10,000 to build is going to get built and it's going to show up in the theater and you're going to be like, oh, I forgot, you didn't need that. Then everybody's going to get real mad at you. Um, Let yourself have help if you're able to. Get yourself a stage manager. Get yourself an assistant director. Um, people that can be by your side and can help you. Um, A lot of times, especially starting out, you will not have the luxury of having that. So you have to do the best that you can on your own. Um, Yeah, Amanda. How close do you like to be with your stage manager? Do you consider like your stage manager is like your go-to person to text like every day about like anything that happens at the show? Or are you kind of more like, if I need you, I'll let you know, but I'm like, 
can handle a lot of things on my own. It depends on your needs for the show. Um, and it depends on whether you get to choose your stage manager, um, how good they are at their job and what kind of relationship you have with them. I'm, I'm somebody, I'm really good at multitasking. So a lot of times it's easy for me to just sort of take care of it. Um, but what I've really learned is important is to delegate whenever you can. Um, the thing that I do think is important when you're deciding how to work with a stage manager or assistant director or whoever is to be very, very clear on what your expectations are for them. Um, so for example, with my stage manager, I'll usually have them sit next to me in rehearsal. Um, I will say, um, I really need you to be the source of communication to the actors. So you're going to be, I'll tell you what you need to send, but you're the one who needs to send the emails to the actors about things that may come up. I need you to time things when I ask, when we're running things, I need you to time them. I need you to be in charge of breaks. Um, and I'm going to need you to be in charge of X, Y, and Z. So just to be really clear on what those things are. Um, if you, um, find that they're incompetent. <laughs> there have been times when I've been like, Hey, I need you to send an email to the cast about X, Y, and Z. And somehow that never goes out. Then if you can, you need to replace the stage manager or you need to be like, okay, I guess it's on me. I mean, that's the thing about sort of the parent analogy is at the end of the day, you are the one who is going to have to pick up the slack. If somebody's not doing their job, it's not your responsibility. You shouldn't have to do it, but you're the one who's going to have to. Yeah, Mitch, it looked like you had a question. Um, I did, and it just left my mind because <laughs> you said something and I was writing it down. Um, oh, wait. Um, oh, okay. When you're – back to what you said about calling actors. Yeah. Um, say – this is like a super specific example, but like if you're working on a show where you – your actors are also responsible for like the movement of the set and the props and everything that's sort of mm -hmm. functioning in the space. Yeah. How does that work with calling them? Because there could be people that are in the scene working, but there's other transitional stuff that's happening with other actors. So is that totally. done um, later as a separate thing or is that that's done a, in the same That's all? a great question. And it, again, it sort of depends on the piece. If you're doing something like Peter and the Starcatcher, you're going to kind of need to have everybody there all the time because they are actively participating in everything that's going on. Um, if it's not quite as extreme as Peter and the Starcatcher, what you might do is have an initial rehearsal with the actors in a scene to um, really get the emotional beats down. And so they figure out acting wise what they're doing. And then you can even, you could brainstorm things like, oh, it'd be really helpful if this moved here or that moved there. And great, totally. And then you make notes of it. And then the next time you come back, you bring everybody there and then you're going to try it with everything. Um, yeah, Elena. Um, also on the calling actors thing, at what point in the rehearsal process would you say, for like the example that you had with mm -hmm. you, Mitch and Connor, at what point would you say, okay, sorry, Ashley, no, you're not in the show all that much, right. but now you have to be here all the time. What right. what point in the rehearsal process do you, okay, do you say, okay, sorry, it sucks, yeah. but you're here all the time um, now? It definitely depends on what the show is and what the needs are. Um, Certainly by the time you're doing your first stumble through, everybody kind of needs to be there. But the thing is, again, this goes with preparedness um, and trying to create trustworthiness. The more open you are about this stuff, 
the more people will roll with you. If on the first day of rehearsal you say, I'm going to do everything in my power to not have people sitting around and wasting their time, to only call you when you're needed. But of course, there will come a time when I'm going to have to start calling everybody. And and I, I like to speak to... Um, the positive expectation instead of like, I'm really sorry, be like, and thank you all so much for rolling with it and being such a support to this production. Um, one of the things um, I went to performing arts high school and, and the head of our musical theater program, one of the things that was so special about him was he never treated us like high school students. We were Broadway professionals from the moment we walked in that room and that caused us to rise to that level. And I think that any time you can come in with nothing but the most positive expectations, either from acting ability to everybody's collaborative ability um, to the energy people are bringing, the more that you can just, that's, that's who everybody is and that's what it's going to be. The more people will rise to that level. So the more the language can be, thank you all so much for rolling with it. Thank you all so much for dealing with a difficult situation. I always start when we go into tech week with a little spiel about, hey guys, we're going into tech week. We all know this sucks. So thank you for making this the best tech week we've ever had. Um, I advise you to bring books. I will give you breaks whenever I can, but it's going to be what it's going to be. And thank you so much for being in the trenches with all of us. You know, the more you can, the more you can combine making it a positive experience with, hey, Captain of the ship over here 100% understands what's going on and I have your best interests at heart and because of that, this is what I'm going to need from you right now. It's the times when it's like, oh yeah, I guess you didn't need to be here or yeah, whatever. It's, it's that when it starts to sort of, if, you, if you're on top of it and you know what you're doing and it's a de deliberate decision on your part, people will generally roll with it and be understanding. Yeah, Amanda. Ah, I had another question. Um, what do you tend to ask of an assistant director if you have another project? Like, what do you usually delegate to them? That depends, honestly, on who they are. Um, there's sort of two different types of assistant directors. There's an assistant director who's maybe somebody that you don't know very well, who's maybe younger, who's trying to learn about the business. And you're like, hey, you seem talented. Why don't you come on and learn? In that sense, they're there to learn. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to rely on them at all but it means that I'm maybe going to be asking slightly different things. I'll probably ask them to take notes. I might ask them to do some of the things that a stage manager might do. Um, I might check in with them with certain things. If this is a big production and I'm working with an assistant director who is well-established and maybe even a, a serious director in their own right, then I'm going to maybe be relying on them more to be an equal eye with mine, not in terms of, of necessarily speaking to the actors, but being like, hey, I had this idea. What did you think of it? And what do you what do you think about the way that this is turning out? And and really being like a a real partner for me to lean on in in an artistic sense. Um, but it depends on the person. It depends on how well you know them, and it depends on what level they sort of are with their own directing, and whether they're there to learn or whether they're there to really be a support to you. So it just sort of depends on the person, and it depends on person to person. It's kind of what you need. I mean, the thing is when you're the director, you're kind of carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. So it's really good for you to sit back and think, okay, what can, what would it be possible for me to delegate to somebody else that would make my life easier right now? Um, and if that's emailing people, if that's, Hey, can you please just go on Amazon and find me like 10 options of pink scarves that would just like reduce my stress right now. Um, 
it's don't make them like the person who goes and gets you coffee, like make them a part of the process because regardless of if they're just starting out, they're going to have good ideas too. Um, but do find ways for other people to take things off your plate. Cause you're going to be dealing with a lot. Um, a dear friend I know who's a Broadway director. Um, and I mean, we're talking Broadway with like millions of dollars in budgets, but like they get up at seven every morning they have to get ready for their day. They're having pre-production meetings with everybody. They're getting, you have to be at the rehearsal studio before everybody else. You better get there before your actors. Um, going through all the rehearsals of the day. Then at the end of the day, they're having production meetings. And then they're having meetings for shows they have coming down the pipeline. And they're not getting to sleep until like two in the morning. So get help where you can get it. Um, did somebody else have a question? Yes, Connor. Hi, I have an ultra-specific question yes. to me. Um, I'm planning to propose for next year for the student company here, mm -hmm. Machinal by Sophie Treadwell. Mm -hmm. Do you know it? Not really. Okay. Okay. It's a, it's a feminist play. It also deals with race and all kinds of, like, super political topics. Mm -hmm. And I am obviously a white man. Mm -hmm. But I, I really trust in my vision for the show technically. <coughs> I'm curious now, my next step, I want to know what you think about um, how I start creating an environment that allows to create a show mm -hmm. um, where my voice is not the only one heard in it, where I really like yeah. give my actors autonomy in that. That's a wonderful question. And first of all, the mere fact that you're asking that question means that you're significantly on the right track. Um, so bravo to you. Um, the first thing that I would do is I would hire people as much as you're able with, you know, who you have available on your production team that are wildly different from you. I would get women on your team. I would get um, people of color on your team. I would any, 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 anything that's represented in the play. If you can find people that have a more personal connection to those specific things to get on your production team, get them on your production team. Um, and honestly, I would start rehearsals kind of by saying what you just said and be like, Hey, you know, this is who I am. I feel that I have a really strong vision for this piece and feel very called to work on it. That being said, I don't want my voice to be the only one in the room. And there's a very divergent cast here. And I want this to be a collaborative ensemble piece. And I want to hear from you because you're going to have better knowledge about a lot of this stuff than I am. Just be flat out honest and say it on the first day. Um, and I think that that will do a lot to help, um, and create a good environment. So those are the two big things that I would probably suggest doing awesome. it. Yeah. yeah, of course. Um, let me see. Okay. So then after you do that, you're going to get into staging. I like to stage in my script ahead of time. I'll get my script printed out again. This does not mean it's set in stone, but I need to have a game plan because there's nothing worse than getting actors in a room to stage it and be like, okay, so get up there. And like that, try to do, do something. It's like, okay. Um, there are, this is where the technical side that you've been learning in your classes is going to meet the sort of more personal side. So the technical side is when you spend time ahead of time with your script and you figure out what are the stage pictures that I need? What are the, what are the visual elements that I need on stage in order to make this theme manifest? And those are the things that you need to be able to communicate. And some of those are going to be very specific to the actors. There are some moments in pieces that I stage 
that are like choreography. And I'm upfront about that. I'm like, this moment is going to be really specific. It's going to be like choreography. And that's what this moment's going to be. Um, other moments, it, you know, it can be like, great, let's start here. And like, let's just run the scene and let's see where you end up. And then they'll, they'll do it. And be like, great. I noticed this and this were really great. What did you feel? So there's different ways to approach it. But you must have a game plan. And one of the biggest things that I think is important with a game plan, especially with certain kinds of plays, is figuring out where everybody is entering and where everybody is exiting. Because something that's, it's, it's just a great thing to do ahead of time is, you know, where's the exit? Where are they making their quick change? Where they exited? Are they able to get around to where you want them to enter from again? It's going to save you a lot of time and angst. So you can always start with, you're going to enter from upright you're going to exit over here and you're going to have to stay in that little alcove to do your costume change. You know, it's, it's little things that can set an actor's mind at ease of like, okay, great. I can start working that into my process. I know that that's what I'm going to do. And I'm not going to suddenly be in tech being like, I don't know where my costume change is happening. Um, so honestly, I block the whole show ahead of time and then I get in the room and I'll be like, great, so we're going to block. So this is what the stage is going to look like. I always start, I also start my first meetings at the first table read, like here is a mock-up of the stage, even if it's just in my terrible drawing on a piece of paper. This is what the stage looks like. These are where the entrances and exits are. These are where the walkarounds are. These are the set pieces that we're going to have working. Like talk them all the way through it. And then blocking should be pretty fast, honestly. Take it a scene at a time. Be really clear on where things happen and then leave room for flexibility. You don't have to be like, you're gonna cross here on this word and then you're gonna go over here on this word and then that. If things are really important, great. Give them something to start working with and then you start playing with it. And I find that sort of every piece has this trajectory where you start and you stage things and everything looks phenomenal. And then we go into this like weird chasm of everybody's starting to really try to synthesize things and things start to kind of look worse for a while as they try to like, wait a minute, that thing that I did that was just organic, I don't really remember what exactly, how exactly I got there and what. So it's going to take a dip into like, this isn't looking quite as good as that like first day that we did it, but like generally making some progression toward positive And then all of a sudden it peaks and like everybody finds it and it gels. Um, be, be okay with that. Be comfortable with that. Um, know how much time you have to really get through things. Um, so yeah. And so that time alone and the time with your designers is when you really are going to want to latch on to all the things you're doing in class about stage picture, about movement, about all that stuff. If there are things like that, that are going to be a part of the show, like if this is a farce and it's, or it's a melodrama and everybody's going to be acting very melodramatically, tell them that in the first rehearsal. This is a melodrama. We're treating it as such. You cannot go too far. You know, just, you know, be prepared and all that. Um, so that was sort of a lot in terms of just like a basic throwing how you start to think about this at you. But that's sort of the structure of preparation that I take as a director. Do you guys have any questions at this point about anything that we talked about? Yeah, Elena. So just very briefly on um, what you just mentioned about like melodrama and farce and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, one of my classes that I'm in this semester is um, alternative acting styles. Mm -hmm. And I'm not an actor. I'm really just taking yeah. it so that I can expose myself for if and when I do Side have note, to Elena's on the right track. Every single one of you should be in acting classes. You cannot direct actors unless you have some idea of how to do it yourself. So yes, good call. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so 
I I do that and it's kind it's it's stressful but like I'm I'm like developing like those kinds of styles into my wheelhouse and things but like for you like how would you approach directing a play that is not your style you're not very well like experienced it's completely different from anything that you've ever done you're not exposed to it like how would you like feel be able to go into the rehearsal room prepared yeah uh, in a style you're completely unfamiliar with um well that raises a lot of really great questions I'm trying to think like for example kabuki I'm, I'm familiar with the kabuki style I'm not super familiar with it like I, I could not teach you a master class on kabuki theater um so that's also a different thing because that's a, a different ethnic type of theater than me and so my doing it could also be kind of a not great cultural appropriation so that adds a whole other element to it but just because it's one I'm not familiar with I'll use it as an example um, there's kind of two things you can do um, the first one is if it's so out of your wheelhouse that you feel very uncomfortable then turn it down um, and be like I think that maybe somebody who's more familiar with the style should do it if that's not if it's not that extreme I would go into extraordinary research until you start rehearsals for that show I would be watching every documentary on that that you possibly can every theater piece or film that is done in that style I would read every interview about it that you possibly educate yourself as much as humanly possible I would be calling up practitioners of that method and asking if I could take them out to coffee. Like, do as much research as you possibly can. Then cast people who know what they're doing in that style um, because they can really help make your job a lot easier. Um, and that's kind of all you can really do. It's just familiarize yourself with it as much as you possibly can and then get a team around you that's better at it than you are um, is sort of what, what in general I would do. Um, and then use them as a sounding board and be honest about it. Like if I'm doing, let's say I'm not as familiar with melodrama and I have to do that. First day I would be like, hey, melodrama is a little bit of a new experience for me. I'm really excited for all of us to um, explore it together um, and be upfront about it and make it a communal ensemble thing. Um, but yeah, I would say research is probably your best bet as much as you can. Yeah, Natalie. So... I just, my question sort of sums, it kind of goes back to casting, yeah. um, but sort of also what you said about like casting people who have experience in a field. Um, yeah. Because starting off, I feel like it, it, it can be a little bit of like a vicious circle where it's right. like no one wants to hire you, particularly as a director, until you have directing experience right. and it's hard to get directing experience. Exactly. If someone doesn't hire you as a director. So, um, so I I just feel like there might be a time when certainly most of us starting out we could be directing uh, sort of in in environments uh, mm -hmm. or or, or uh, areas where the field of actors is not as broad mm -hmm. uh, that are coming to these auditions whether it's we're directing like a community theater piece or, yeah. or something um, or an educational piece so I guess what I'm saying is what. What is sort of, if, if you don't have the ideal actors coming mm -hmm. and you don't find the ideal actor for totally what you want, like what are the concessions that, that should be made and what are the, the qualities that should be prioritized? That's a really, really great question. And it's uh, something that comes up no matter how high of level of professional theater you're doing. Um, and, and vice versa. Sometimes you're working at, you know, 
community theater productions and you find like the greatest actor you've ever worked with. Um, but let me think. It's sort of up to following your instincts to a certain degree. Um, you need people that have at least a certain level of competence. And I mean, like at bare minimum, they need to be able to walk on stage with their lines memorized, with their blocking memorized, and have some semblance of the character. I mean, if you really get down to it, that's the bare minimum that you have to have in order for an actor to be able to do a part. So can they do that? Um, try to figure out as much as you can how game they are to play and how well they take direction. Um, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to pick whoever you think the best candidate is from the pool that you were given. And you're just going to have to make do with that, um, is unfortunately what it is. Um, but at the end of the day, you just sort of have to make a judgment call on who the best is based on the people that you have available. Um, and it can also be a fun challenge. Honestly, if you're working with somebody who's maybe struggling a little bit, um, it's a great challenge of a director to see how much you can bring out of them and how much you can help them. And then it becomes your, your job to help them do that. Yeah, Connor. I had a question about, do you have any general pointers for staging in different, uh, like staging setups, like in a, mm -hmm. in the round versus a three quarter thrust versus traverse? Yeah. Um, uh, thrust is basically similar to proscenium, but you want to make sure that you're bringing people as far downstage as possible. Um, with the proscenium, you're obviously keeping them like behind the proscenium, just a thrust, like get them out there. If any of you know the TV show Slings and Arrows, it's one of the greatest things ever. I highly, highly recommend watching it. It's all available on, um, YouTube. I think, um, the, the, it's a, it's a parody of the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. And the whole first season is about trying to do Hamlet. The second is about trying to do Macbeth and the third is about King Lear. It just made me think of it because in the Macbeth season, there's an actor who will not listen to direction and doesn't like the thrust and will not walk downstage of the proscenium and they have to like force him down because no one can see him um in the round in the round is interesting and I did a show off Broadway that was in the round it can it can be tricky um the biggest thing is you can't hide anything you know everybody is seeing everything that's going on so the um when you're when you're staging um something in the round it's a circle there's my bad circle with my hands and the way that you delineate things, because there's no like stage right, stage left or whatnot, is um, you treat it like a clock. So there's like this would be 12 o'clock and this would be 6 o'clock and, um, you know, 9 and 3. Um, and you can sometimes do that based off of where the exits or the voms are. So the different voms are like portions of a clock. And you delineate that in whatever space you're in, because that can be really disorienting. Like you just walk into a different room and you're like, where's 12 o'clock today? I have no idea. Um, yeah. So you just delineate it on the floor. Um, and then as the director, the biggest thing is always sit somewhere different in the room at every rehearsal. Um, make sure you're sitting all the way around the circle because um, you're going to see different things. Um, and one of the things that you can tell your actors, it was a big adjustment for me as an actor is one of the things that you learn is like, you do not like turn your back to the audience as an actor on a proscenium stage. And you're always cheating out with your fellow actors. So you're, I can't really do this, but like, you're not actually talking to a person like this. You're talking to them slightly like this, that kind of goes out the window in the round. And it's kind of odd because physically you can be a little more organic 
you are always going to have your back to a portion of the audience and you are always going to be speaking flat on to another actor. Um, so getting actors out of their actory habits a little bit is something to be aware of. Um, but yeah, so just make sure that your actors always know where things are and then make sure that you're sitting at all points so that you can see everything. Um, and yeah, those are sort of the main ones. It gets really fun when you start doing it in like found spaces or immersive things. And then it's like all hands on deck. That's actually a great way that you can use assistant directors and stage managers is be like, great, I'm going to go be the audience over here. You be the audience over there. Um, so that actors are used to having audience all around and not only playing to wherever the director happens to be sitting. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Sorry. Um, that brought up a whole other question. I didn't even think I would ever have to ask. So in terms of like director and assistant stage manager, um, I've been a director, I've been a stage manager, I've been an ASM plenty of times, but as a director, how much like can you ask of your of the ASMs like would you would you ask the stage manager hey can the ASM go do this for me if you don't have an AD or like how much um yeah I think I think you can I mean again being captain of the ship means you're captain of the ship I would just tread lightly because you don't want to like take over somebody else's job um I would go through the stage manager I wouldn't necessarily go straight to the ASM and be like hey go do this for me but I would maybe mm-hmm. lean to the stage manager and be like, hey, do you think, you know, she might be able to do this or that or whatnot? And she may, might be able to be like, oh, well, actually, I asked her to do this other thing already, but I can find somebody to do it. So I think it's always like respect the chain of command, but you're the captain of the ship. And if you need somebody to do something, like find somebody to do the thing. Yeah. Okay. Anything else for now? Okay. I yeah, Yes. Shana. Oh, sorry. No. Um, uh, so I, I just had like a question on how you deal with like really mature content in place. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I want to direct how I learned to drive one day. Yeah, yeah. It's going to happen. But how, as a director, do you handle really triggering content mm-hmm. for audiences, for your actors, for all your collaborators in the room this is a great question um especially because kind of all of my pieces deal with this really heavily so I'm very familiar with it um yeah um the first thing is to be very upfront about it like from the get-go and by the get-go I mean in the breakdown for the cat for casting um probably the most extreme example of needing to deal with this is in my play snow um which I know some of you have read there is a 11 12 year old girl in it um the the 11, 12 year old girl has to witness some pretty dark things, um, does not have to be involved in them herself, but is involved in a show where some even worse dark things happen. Um, so starting with on the breakdown for the character, it says this play contains material dealing with X, Y, and Z. This character will be required to do X, Y, and Z. We are happy to have a conversation about it. Here is a copy of the script for you to read before deciding whether to come in and audition or not. But this is the information. Um, I also am really open and upfront about it at the beginning. The other thing that's a great resource, which um, if there's any way that you're doing a show like that and you can afford, is to hire an intimacy coach or an intimacy coordinator. It's a wonderful new thing. Um, Alicia Rodas, a friend of mine, um, founded it. I believe she did. Every time I say a fact, I feel like I'm going to get in trouble because it was wrong later or something, but she's certainly very important in charge of it. Um, 
And it's basically like hiding, like you would hire a fight choreographer to do crazy combat sequences. So an intimacy director is wonderful and they're there to really help you deal with those issues. They're there to help stage it in a healthy way. They're there to help communicate with the actors. Um, they're a really, really great resource. I would say if you're going to use an intimacy director, hire somebody who is an official one. Don't like find your friend who you think might be good at it. Like go to the intimacy director society and ask how you can use somebody. Um, but the other thing that I think is really important is from the first moment to say, Hey, so these things are happening in the show. These are the rules that we're establishing. Number one, Always say something if you feel uncomfortable. You can say it in the room. You can say it in the moment. You can email privately. You can have private conversations at any moment, however you feel the most comfortable. Say something. Do not be worried if it's going to affect the scene or not. Like, let's say, I don't know, if you're doing a, a, a scene where somebody has to be strangled or something, and they're like, I'm actually really uncomfortable with this part of my neck being touched. Nobody should ever feel like I can't say it because it's going to ruin the moment. It's your job or the intimacy director's job to be like, great, how are we then going to stage this moment while, you know, maintaining the boundaries that this person has set? Always make it clear that somebody's comfort and somebody's boundaries supersede anything else. Um, that being said, they should not have accepted the part if they weren't comfortable with a certain level of things. Like if they know that there is a sex scene in it it's very difficult for them to then be like, I will not be involved in any sex scenes. That's when you maybe have to replace somebody. Um, but within them being game for what they're, they've been asked to do, make sure the conversation is very, very open and go overboard in terms of asking for consent. Um, in any scene, I mean, even, and it's great to just sort of create an environment of this in general. If I'm directing actors and I want the actor to put their hand on somebody else's shoulder has nothing to do with being, combative or sexual in any means, I will always say, is it all right if I touch your shoulder? And there'll usually be a laugh like, yeah, of course, it's fine, whatever. But what it does is it institutes a, you know, a, a consent environment. And so when you are dealing with those darker issues, it's like, great, in the table reads, let's start by talking about it. These are really uncomfortable things. I'm uncomfortable. You're probably uncomfortable. Let's talk about that. Um, what I wouldn't do is try to force anybody to share anything personal or private. Um, you can use language like, um, I'm sure many people may have experiences in their own life that are similar. Um, you can certainly talk about your own experiences if you're comfortable with that, but don't ever pinpoint like, do you have experience with that? Or you told me once that you did this. Do you want to share that with the group? Like, don't, everybody can deal with their own, you know, mental processes of that. If they want to share it, that's great. But I would talk in general terms. And then when you're staging it, I would make it as technical as possible. And again, come in prepared. Be like, hey, so this is what I would like to try. If any of these things feel uncomfortable to you, then just tell me. And talk talk through it. Like, like in How I Learned to Drive, there's that big scene at the end. You can start with like, so what I would like to try is for you to be sitting on this chair. Around this line, I would love for you to come and sit on his lap. Is that something that you feel okay with? And really take it like step by step to the point where if it becomes comical, great. I'd rather have it become comical than that somebody feels that something was violated. I also um, would continue this consent asking throughout the process um, because somebody might feel comfortable with something one day and then a couple days later realize, you know what? It's actually triggering something. Is there another way that we can do it? Absolutely. That will always take precedence. Um, and just, just be really open with it. 
Um, when it comes to the point of running things full out, I would treat it the same as doing a fight call. We're like, great, we're going to run this just technically marking it. Great. And so they do that. How did that feel? Anything weird. Now we're going to do it 50% emotionally. Great. We're going to do that. Now we're going to do it like 80% emotionally. And now we're going to do it full out. And at every point, stop, check in with the actors. How does that feel? Um, and normally, most of the time, it will be checking in a little too much and people will be like, I'm, like, I'm fine. I would much rather have that than for somebody to feel like they can't speak up about something. Um, and that also allows for trust between the actors. You can also check in with actors um, privately. If you're dealing with a situation where there is a child in the show, I was a child actor growing up, so I have experience on this from both ends. Um, First of all, whenever casting child actors, you're casting their parents just as much. So make sure they have nice parents that are easy to work with. Um, so when we were working with this amazing little girl um, with Snow, um, first when she came in I, I with the parent, we would ask, great, did you get a chance to read the script? Do you have any questions about the script? Have you read about the things that are in it? Yeah, and make sure that you get that they are absolutely 100% clear on what it is. Um, then she was offered the role. So then there was a conversation with the parents about like, great, how would you like us to talk about this? Are you talking with her about it? And then they were like, yeah, we've been reading through the script with her. We've been talking with her about all the issues. She's very familiar. Like, it's fine. Um, when she would come into scenes where she would have, we would stage all of the darker material without her in the room so that nobody had to, you know, deal with the child being in the room while they were trying to figure it out for the first time. Then when we brought her in, what we would do is talk her through, great, so technically, this is what's going on. And we would talk through the technical things and everybody would be laughing and whatnot. Um, and then we would say, do you have any questions about that? Do you feel comfortable with that? Yeah, totally. Okay, so now we're going to run it at like 50% speed or whatnot. You know, and we would do that and keep the dialogue open with that. We found actually that we were all far more uncomfortable than she was. <laughs> She's like, I'm in middle school. I know all about this stuff. And we're like, well, we're not okay. So we need to go slowly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just about keeping a constant dialogue, making sure that everybody's comfortable and talking about it before the fact. Um, so it's not like a big surprise to anybody. Um, so yeah, that's, that's honestly, that's what I would do in that situation. Yeah. Any other questions about anything? Okay, so I have a little assignment for you. Oh, yes, yes, Amanda. I was just going to ask, when you're working with a fight director or an intimacy coordinator, um, do you meet with them privately before they get into the rehearsal room and, like, just say, like, can you just show me what your blocking is or, like, what your idea is and have a conversation? Because I think what Fredonia's teaching, mm -hmm. at least, is that, like, we, as directors and stage managers, never really have the conversation with our fight directors mm -hmm. until they get into the rehearsal room. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like, uh, I don't know if that's like what happens in the real world or if that's just like what we're not like as aware about. Personally, I've never heard of that happening in the real world. Um, and I would a hundred percent not recommend that. Um, they might not show you all the fight choreography because it's a little difficult to do that unless you have like a bunch of people actually choreographers for musicals a lot of times will actually go off with their dancers and send things to the director like hey this is what I'm thinking um nobody should be coming in a rehearsal room to do anything with your actors unless you have spoken to them ahead of time to make sure that you're on the same page um 
what you should do is you should sit down with your fight director or intimacy director. They should have already gotten the script prior. Um, well, first of all, you should have already met with them because you're, you have hired them. But basically what I would do is I would sit down. I would go through every single moment of either all the combat moments or all the intimacy moments in the script. Um, I would read through them. And then I would say anything that I felt was important about the scene. Like, for example, there's a piece that I'm working on that um, there's a... Sorry. I deal with dark material. There's a scene of incest that's involved in the, in the piece. Um, what's important about this moment of incest is as far as both the characters in their mindsets at the time are concerned, it's a beautiful consensual thing. That's obviously something very different from what we're watching on the outside and from the trajectory of where the play is going. But that's an important thing for an intimacy director to know because otherwise they could come in and be like, oh, this is this horrible, like, um, uh, you know, wow, what's the word? Uh, it's not, it's not intimacy. Um, it's this hor it's, you know, it's this horrible scene between a brother and a sister. Like, you know, of course, like he's taking advantage of her or whatnot. And that's not what the scene calls for. So I think it's really, um, important to get on the same page emotionally in terms of what's going on. It's also good to be able to touch base because at this point you will probably know because you're the director and you've auditioned all these people to be able to say, this person has an extraordinary amount of stage combat experience. This person isn't as experienced with stage combat so that they can know the levels that they're going to be working with when they get in. Um, if there's any specific things that are in the script, you can either say like, you know, these beats are really mapped out in the script and I want them to stay as written or those are just a general idea. Feel free to play around with it. Um, and then they'll usually come back with, cool, this is generally what I was thinking. And so that you're at least on a general same page with what the goal of the moment is. Like the, the sword fight scene in Hamlet's a great example. That scene has been done to death in a million different ways. There were very specific things that I wanted to accomplish in that scene that I talked to the fight choreographer about before we came in to stage it. Because otherwise they could have just done, you know, a generic Hamlet sword fighting scene. Um, once you've met with them, then they'll come into the room. It's important that you be there as well. And then it'll be a little bit of a figuring it out. They'll usually say like, great, so this is what I would like to try. These are the beats I would like to try. Let's start playing with it. And then it'll start changing based on what happens in the room. But at least you know you're on the same page. I don't ever think it's a good idea for somebody to come in and direct your actors that you have not had a prior discussion with. Um, again, you're like the parent. You're the captain of the ship. You need to herd all the cats, as it were. Um, and, and, you know, and just, just make sure, make sure it also just helps to make sure that everybody's in service of the same show in service of the same goal. We're all on the same page. Otherwise it just gets kind of confusing. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing I would just say is go online and watch interviews with directors you like, um, subscribe to national theater live. They do a lot of behind the scenes things on like devising work and they do really genius things in the UK that we don't tend to do in the States. Um, so it's a, it's a great learning tool. Yeah. So thank you so much. And I will see you guys really soon. This episode of stage directions was brought to you by the onstage blog podcast network. If you enjoyed today's show, head over to onstageblog.com to gain access to all of our free shows. And also head over to iTunes, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's always very much appreciated.